to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we're in the third of five lessons on the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah and the story of Jonah is something that's pretty well known to a lot of people, even people that don't go to church and all that because of its unusual features. And um, we're calling this series Jonah with a subtitle of God is Gracious and Merciful. As we've mentioned, when people think of Jonah, they think of the unusual part of the story. You know, he runs away from God. Uh, He gets swallowed by a fish, great storm, you know, all that kind of thing. But the book is Full, full, full of references and examples of God's grace and mercy. So we've been trying to look for those things specifically as we go through this story. The title of the lesson tonight is God of the Second Chance. God of the Second. Whenever I hear that phrase about a second chance, it makes me think of my granddaughters when they were young. Um, They're teens now. But when they lived here and they were very, very young and we were around them a lot. And so they would do something or say something wrong. And their mom or their dad would say, nope, you know, start talking, discipline them. Give me a second chance. Give me a second. That was the first thing out of their mouth. Did, did any of your kids ever do that? Any of your grandkids? Give me a second chance. Give me a second. I want to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever done that or if you still do that. I don't know. <laughs> Give me a second chance. Um, I'm sure every single one of us have asked for a second chance. Okay. Um, have you ever been, been asked by somebody else to give them a second chance. You know, it's really interesting. If we really want to be honest, we believe we deserve a second chance, right? I mean, we know we need one in many situations. We believe we deserve it, but when we look at other people, we have a hard time believing that they really deserve it, right? And we have a hard time wanting to give it to them, in in many cases anyway. There's some, maybe not. Why is that? Why is there such a discrepancy between what we believe that we deserve or should get versus what we would like to give to other people? Because we have a selfish nature. Because we have a selfish... That sums it up. Because we're sinners, right? And we're selfish. And we want what's good for us. But if somebody's done something to us that hurts us, offends us, or whatever, it's like they need... It's that old thing that we want justice for everybody else, but mercy and grace for us. Right? Any other thoughts along? I mean, that sums it pretty good, but any other thoughts about why there's such that discrepancy uh, between the way we feel about it? Jose? Oh, yeah, we're sincere, but they must not be sincere. Yeah. And we believe we made a mistake, whereas they did it intentionally, right? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of reasons why we, we struggle with that. All right. There may be something in there, too. Maybe we had a situation where somebody didn't give us a second chance, so we're less likely to want to give it to somebody else. That could be in there, too, anyway. All right, well, tonight we're looking at Jonah chapter 3, and um, if you missed either of the last two lessons, you can listen to it online if you'd like to do that. Um, quick review, a story most people know, you know, God tells the prophet Jonah, Jonah is a prophet of Israel, um, to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, which has nothing to do with God's people. In fact, it is a, one of the major cities in the empire of Assyria, a very wicked evil, not only city, but empire known for um, terrible, um, atrocious evil in the way they treat people, especially the people they conquer and such. 
um, torturing people, I mean, doing terrible things, um, and an enemy of God's people, all right? In fact, eventually in history, after Jonah, down a long while, they're going to end up conquering Jonah's people. Um, they're going to end up conquering Israel and send most of the people into exile. Um, and God says to Jonah, go and preach to them. I've heard about their evil, and Jonah doesn't want to do it. And we're going to find out next week, as we've talked already in chapter 4, he didn't want to do it because he knew that God would forgive him if they repented. and He didn't want to give them the opportunity to repent. So he decides to try to run from God, which doesn't make any sense, uh, gets on a boat to go toward Tarshish, which is probably somewhere in southern Spain, um, which is 2,000 miles to the west, and Nineveh is 550 miles to the northeast. So he's going the other way, way far. And he goes to sleep. God sends a big storm. The sailors, they're, they're going to capsize, so they cry out to their gods. There's no relief. They wake Jonah up and say, pray to your God. Long story short, comes out that Jonah's the reason they're in the storm. They say, what do we need to do? He says, toss me overboard. They don't want to do that. They want to have mercy on him. Jonah doesn't want mercy for anybody except himself. Um, and they don't want to toss him overboard, so they keep trying, and it doesn't do any good. So they toss him overboard, and the storm ceases. The sailors give praise to Jonah's God. Uh, make sacrifices and vows to him. And Jonah is swallowed by the great fish. And then last week we looked at chapter 2, which was his recounting of how that was like, what that was like, and his prayer and the fact that God had delivered him. And that gets us up to where we are tonight. And the last verse of chapter 2, which is verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. All right. So Jonah's been through all this stuff. He cries out to God. And God has the fish vomit him out. All right. So we've got a couple of thoughts we're going to take a look at from this passage as far as the story itself and then how it applies to our lives today. First of all, God gave Jonah a second chance. God gave Jonah a second chance. So chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish. It vomited Jonah out. And we jump into verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Then the Lord... Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I shall tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So God gave Jonah a second chance. Why did God give Jonah a second chance? Chris? Oh, you spoiled the story. You let us know they repented. <laughs> we were supposed to find that out until next week. I'm just joking. Yeah, they repented. Jonah was God's man for the job. I mean, could he have raised up another man to do it since Jonah ran away? Yeah. But in God's purposes for Jonah and in God's purposes for Nineveh, he wanted to use Jonah. And so in his sovereignty, he decided to give him a second chance. Any other thoughts about why God gave Jonah a second chance? He asked for one. Well, we know that he cried out to God, you know, repented and all that kind of stuff. There's nothing in chapter 2 that says, send me again, but he could have. You know, it's just not recorded there, so it could be. He might have said, because it does say in chapter 2 that he was looking forward to sacrificing, you know, to God again. And that he made a vow. We don't know what the vow was, but maybe the vow was, you know, God, give me a second chance and I'll go do it. Yeah. He cried out to God, you know, all right? Any of us? Yeah, Nina. Because God loved him. Yeah, God loves us. I mean, the whole point is not just that God give Jonah a second chance, but he gives us second chances too. Joe. 
Oh, that was a different one. That's, yeah, Peter was the son of a Jonah, but it wasn't this Jonah. Yeah. The only thing we know about Jonah's lineage is his father's name was Amittai. But we don't know who Amittai was. So, yeah. Good thought, though. Good thought. All right. So God gives Jonah a second chance. Can you think of other examples in the Bible where God gave people second chances? What? Yeah. How about everybody in the Bible, right? Just about. Uh, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? Any others stand out? Samson? Peter. Yeah, we just got done studying the life of Peter. How about um, David? You know, what David did, he should have been put to death. God forgave him because of his response. Look at the New Testament. You got Peter and then you got Mark. Remember, John Mark went on the first missionary journey with Paul and um, Barnabas, and then he deserted them. And then Paul and Barnabas get ready to go on a second missionary journey. And Barnabas says, let's take Mark. And Peter's, uh, Paul says, no, he left us. Um, and then Barnabas says, okay, let's split up. I'll take Mark, you take Silas. And they did that. But then later on, Paul says in one of his last letters, he says, um, John Mark has been very helpful to me. So obviously they got back together. So God gave him a second chance, but so did Paul, which is a great example. God gives people second chances. We need to, too. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, Lazarus got a second chance. Um, he's one of the ones that probably didn't want one. You know, I always wondered how Lazarus felt about coming back to life after he'd already been in God's presence. You know what I'm saying? It's like, why did you bring me back? Robert. Yes, the whole nation of Israel. You know, as I've said so many times, God never gives up on his people. We may give up on him. We may run far away. Um, my my position is that you can actually ultimately reject God. I know a lot of people say that if you truly know God, you can't, but we won't get into that whole theological discussion. But God never gives up on us. The door is always open for us to come back home, to make things right, to repent, and all that kind of stuff. He never gets, and we see it over and over with his people. You know, we probably all received a second chance from God. Um, one of my favorite verses, because I have to put it into practice too many times, is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, this whole thing about God giving second chances and stuff, it, it, um, something I want to bring out before we go on, is that there are two kind of um, spiritually unhealthy extremes in this area of thought, okay? And they're, and they're not biblical. There's one where people say, I have blown it so bad that there's no way that God will forgive me. There's no way that God can forgive me. And so sometimes people will believe that lie of the enemy and not come back to God, not repent, not ask God to forgive them. And the thing is, I mean, they say, I don't deserve it. And that's true. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve a first chance, to be honest with you, because of our sin, and we definitely don't, but, but God still loves us. And we need, to, we need to, to understand that God will forgive and restore. Now, people throw out there, what about the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And just real quickly, my opinion after 50-something years of study, um, and I, a lot of other people, not that they agree with me, but the same, <laughs> is that that's talking about when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our hearts and we don't respond, we keep saying, no, 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 no. That's why you can't be forgiven because you don't respond to the conviction and you don't ask for forgiveness. And one thing I've heard so many times is if there's anybody that's ever concerned about, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I can't be forgiven, the fact that you're concerned about it shows that you haven't. Yeah. Felix, you had your hand up. Say what? Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Yeah, you know, when the angels came and talked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a, is a great example of how our prayers can make a difference in people getting a second chance. You know, God appeared to Abraham and told, revealed to him he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, what if there's righteous people in there? You know, what if there's 50? And God says, if there's 50, I won't destroy it. What if there's 45? He worked them all the way down. Even to, I think it was 10 when he finally stopped. Unfortunately, there weren't even 10. But God still delivered Lot, you know, Abraham's nephew and his family um, because, you know, he gave them that chance. All right. So there's that one extreme of people that say, well, I've blown it. I've blown it so bad. There's no way God can or will um, forgive me. I don't deserve it. Um, but God does forgive and restore. The other extreme that we have to avoid is people saying, well, God gives second chances. So if I sin, it's not that big a deal. Or sometimes we kind of, the, the enemy, again, it lies to the enemy. We'll come and say, well, go ahead and do it. God will forgive you, you know. Will God forgive us? Yes, if we're truly repentant. But we don't need to presume upon God's grace. And there's other reasons why you don't want to do that. We'll get to that later in the lesson. What were you going to say, Lisa? There's always the consequences. There's always the consequences. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Yeah, you've still got... You know, God will forgive if you truly repent. But, you know, the, and I'm sure we're all guilty of this. I'm not confessing for you. I'm just saying of... Getting involved in things, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I know God's going to forgive me, you know, whatever. And thank God he does forgive when we repent. But the more and the more and the more that we do that, the more it can harden our hearts, it can sear our conscience, and that kind of stuff. You know, I can't help but wonder for people that have walked away from a relationship with God if that kind of an attitude was not a big part of the process. So we want to avoid that extreme. On your note sheet, I put it this way. Take advantage of a second chance, but don't try to take advantage of God's grace. Okay? Don't try, in other words, don't say, you know, God will forgive me, so I'm going to go out and do this. God forgive me, then go do it again. You know, don't do that. Don't do that. All right? The second part of the story, second thing on your note sheet, is God gave Nineveh a second chance. God gave Nineveh a second chance. Let's pick the story back up in the second half of verse 3. After Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, just like God said. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let, him call, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay? So God gave Nineveh a second chance. Now, there's a lot of historical detail, cultural detail in here, and I'm not going to pour it all on you, but let me give you a little bit of it, okay? Nineveh, is a town, a uh, major city of the uh, empire of Assyria. 
550 miles from Israel, 550 miles from the seashore, by the way. So when the fish vomited Jonah up, he still had to go 550 miles before he got to Nineveh. So it probably took him about a month, okay? Took him about a month, all right? You can actually look up Nineveh on Google Maps if you want, but what you need to do is look up Mosul, is that how you pronounce it? Mosul, Iraq, yes. Um, You can look it up on, I've done it. Um, it's the, the modern site of Nineveh, okay? Um, the scriptures tell us at the end of chapter 4 that there's over 100, we're over 120,000 people in that city. It says here that um, uh, it was three days' journey in breadth. That's the way the English Standard Version translates it. The phrase that's there, it's, it's kind of nebulous as exactly how it's supposed to be translated. Um, some say it takes three days to go through it, uh, three days to go around it, whatever. But the way it's worded, it just basically means it takes three days to cover it. So, um, you know, it was a big city, but it was not so big that literally it would take three days to walk around the city walls. What most Bible scholars believe what it's saying is one of two things. Either it took three days for him to go to all the various places in the city where he could make proclamation of the message because there were 12 gates and a whole bunch of temples and courtyards. And, you know, if you figure he goes to one place, he's there for an hour or two or three, then he goes to the next, it could have taken three days. Or Nineveh was the center of an administrative region, and it was big enough that if he went not only to Nineveh, but to all the surrounding regions, it would have taken three days. So that could be what it's talking about there. Okay, It's described here as an exceedingly great city. What's interesting is that in, the, in, in Hebrew, in the original language, what it literally says, it is a great city to God. Okay, And in their idiom, that could mean that um, uh, it's even considered a great city in God's sight, so this is a big deal. But it also could mean that it means it was very important to God, which certainly fits with the theme of the book. All right. Um, Jonah goes around. He gives his message and says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Another little twist that's there, and I think this is so neat. You, you don't get it in the English, but in the, in the Hebrew language, that word for overthrown, okay, can also be translated overturned or turned around because the root word is turn. So think about that. Forty days, Nineveh will be overturned or turned around. They were turned around. I mean, the message is that God's going to zap you, all right? But another way that the exact words that Jonah preached was that Nineveh could have made a turn, and they did. So I I think that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So the people decided they're going to fast. They put on sackcloth, which is sort of like burlap. You know, it was the cheapest material you could get, very rough and scratchy. Um, if you were mourning, if you were fasting, whatever, that's what you would wear. Um, and uh, it was always associated with humbling oneself or mourning or repenting. And they began to call it urgently to God because they're afraid of his anger. The king heard about it. He responded. He says, listen, we're not just going to fast. All of our animals are going to fast. We're not just going to wear sackcloth. We're going to throw sackcloth on our animals. All right. He says, we're going to show God that he's serious. Apparently, it seems to indicate that Jonah's message which what we have here may just be a summary or it may be the total thing, did not include unless you repent. Because the king says, let's do this because maybe this God, you know, if he sees what we're doing, will let us, you know, come out of this alive, to paraphrase it, all right? And um, so anyway, it's very, very unusual for people in leadership to respond this way. But note that 
it seems to indicate the text that as soon as they heard the message, they immediately repented. Now remember, these are terribly wicked, evil, heathen people. It doesn't say exactly why, but what are some of the reasons why they might have responded not only so quickly, but in mass, all of them, you know, from the highest to the lowest? What are some of the reasons they might have responded so quickly? Yeah, they might have heard the story of Jonah in the whale. And as we said, you know, with him being in the gastric juices for three days, there's no telling what he looked like. And even though it took him a month to get there, no telling what he smelled like. You know, and if he told his story as part of it, you know. I've read um, that at that time in history that if a prophet from one nation went to another one, that nation would take it very seriously. They'd have to decide what they're going to do with it, but they would take it very seriously. What are some other reasons why the people may have responded so Quickly. Chris? Oh, I'm sorry. Nora? Well, right, but I'm just, the fact that the king did that, you're right. I mean, uh, it, it, with the king making the declaration, anybody who might have been on board with it from the beginning probably got on board. But in the story, it actually starts with the people. They're the ones that start to repent. And then the king hears about it and he says, well, yeah, let's all do it. But you're right. When the king says something, they're going to follow his lead. Chris? Yeah, when it comes down to it, it was God's message, and the Holy Spirit was probably actively involved. Jonah was anointed, and the people believed the message. Now, what's really interesting is that if you study history, you find that there's some other things that probably put the fear of God in them too. Okay, Again, this is, when you really get the opportunity to dig into it, there's some really neat stuff. At this time in history, um, the Assyrians were having trouble controlling their empire. They had once been really big. Then they kind of shrunk a little bit. They're going to be big again, but right now is a time of conflict. Okay, they're having a hard time controlling their empire. Not only that, but there was a coalition of enemies that had joined together to try to come against them. They hadn't yet, but they had this threat that this other, these other enemies were going to come against them. Not only that, but they had had widespread famine at that time in history. There had been two major plagues within five years. There was a total eclipse of the sun. Now, I'm not trying to say that their reason for repenting was all because of natural causes. I'm just saying God uses the natural and he uses the supernatural. I think God orchestrated all these events in history to make them like, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden the supernatural comes in where he's got a prophet of God, anointed by God, and it's like, we better repent. And so they do. But this repentance of the Ninevites, it's, I mean, it's a miracle. It'd be sort of like hearing about this Muslim terrorist training camp of several thousand people all just decide to fall on their knees and surrender to Jesus at the same time. I mean, seriously, you know, 120,000 or more people, evil, wicked, just totally turn their lives over to God. But the thing is, is God's patient, you know, with people that don't know him. He usually gives many opportunities before he shuts a door on someone. Second uh, Peter three nine says the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. That's talking about the promise to come back, get His people, shut everything down, make everything right. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know the most simple answer to why has Jesus not come back yet? Whether it's asked honestly or asked in sarcasm, like, well, Jesus said He's going to come back. It's been two thousand years. The simplest answer is because He's waiting for us. He waited for us. And he's still waiting for some people, you know. 
Um, for some of us, thank God he waited until at least a couple decades ago because we've known the Lord that long. For some of us, if we've been only known the Lord for a year or two, thank God he waited that long, right? But he's still waiting because he wants to give people another chance. God's constantly at work revealing himself to people and drawing them to himself. He does it through creation. He does it through our conscience, through circumstances, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and, of course, most importantly, through the message of the gospel. And that's why we've got to take the gospel to the world and send the gospel to the world. You know, judgment's real, and it's coming, but God always responds to people who turn to him in repentance. Okay, And when he does, then the judgment we're under is no longer valid. You know, if we go back to verses 9 and 10, uh, when the king says, Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When I was studying for this, I came across this really neat statement. I put on your note sheet. If people repent, God will relent. <laughs> Just rhymes and everything, you know? If people will repent, God will relent. God will relent of what? If people repent, God will relent of what? Judgment, destruction. But keep make make very important note here. Lisa's already mentioned it once, and we're going to come back to it. God will relent from judgment, but not necessarily consequences. There is always forgiveness for sins when we repent. But God, most of the time, does not remove the consequences. So a whole, that's a whole other story as to why he does that. I think most of us understand. To help us learn a lesson, you know. If God removed the consequences as we repented, people would do all kinds of stuff then to try to repent, you know. Um, but anyway, if people repent, God will relent. And we see this in Scripture. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. God spoke to Jeremiah. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a, na- uh, concerning a nation or a kingdom, and I would say it's true of people too, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. But if you go on and read the rest of the passage, it also says that if there's somebody that's basically doing the right thing, but they decide to just go be wicked and stuff, he says, I'm going to send judgment. There is judgment for sin. So what are some important principles that we can learn from this? On your note sheet, the first one is this. True repentance involves godly sorrow. True repentance involves godly sorrow. You know, Jonah gave this message, and the message was in 40 days. But it seems to indicate in the story they repented immediately. You know, they didn't wait till day 39. And I throw that out there, but aren't there a lot of people that go through life that way? I'll repent later. I'll repent later. You know, maybe on my deathbed. That's kind of dangerous because you don't know when your deathbed's going to be there. You know, we think we're going to live forever, especially when we're younger, healthier, stronger. We think we're invincible. You know, but I'll do it later. We don't know if we're going to have later. You know, they actually had a deadline. They had 40 days. They could have said, ah, well, let's go ahead and enjoy life for another 35. Then we'll get serious. But they didn't. They repented right away. True repentance involves godly sorrow. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, there's two different kinds of grief, two different kinds of sorrow. One is effective and one's not. What makes the difference? Any thoughts? 
making you think too much? I think that has to do with our intent. Are we just sorry for getting caught? Or are we really sorry? You know? Um, I think of a really good example in Scripture is Peter and Judas. They both denied Jesus. They both betrayed Jesus. They both turned their backs on Jesus. But Peter went on to be the foundation of the church and a great apostle and a great missionary evangelist. And Judas hung himself. They both showed remorse. But Peter had a godly remorse where he was truly sorry and he repented of his sins, whereas basically Judas was like, I'm sorry I did it. It wasn't the right thing to do, but he didn't repent. You know, and he ended up committing suicide. He never changed his behavior. I mean, he let it just eat at his soul and overcome with guilt. He committed suicide. Uh, Letter B, second truth um, or principle here that's important from the story is true repentance results in obedience. True repentance results in obedience. We see this in both Jonah and the Ninevites. You know, in Jonah, if you go back to the very beginning of the chapter, okay, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The whole book starts with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And in fact, chapter 1 and chapter 3 start almost exactly the same word for word, but then it changes a little bit. Okay, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went according to the word of the Lord. And it's like immediately. It's like, I learned my lesson. He said, Go, I'm going. <laughs> He's on his way. Yes, yeah, Sharon. Oh, yeah, he still didn't want to, you know. That's right. That's right. Jonah's still, Jonah's really glad God forgave him, but he's still got an attitude about the Ninevites. We're going to see that a lot more next week, okay? But he did immediately begin to obey, right? And we see the same thing with the Ninevites. Again, it's immediately, what can we do to please this God? What can we do to appeal to his mercy? What can we do to appeal to his, you know, to, 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 to get out of this judgment, all right? And we see that that's true in our lives, too. True repentance results in obedience. True repentance results in, an obe- in a changed life. That's why we see scriptures all through the New Testament that says, if you're really a believer in Jesus, your life will change. If you just claim to be a believer in Jesus, you just said some prayer or something, and your life's not changing, something's not right. You know, if we're truly repentant, it's going to change. All right? You know, when we think about how we come to know God... We repent of our sins because our sin separates us from God and we put our trust in Jesus and what he did. And if we continue in that sin deliberately, ongoing, I mean, we all still struggle with temptation and stuff. It just shows that we didn't take that sin seriously. I've used this illustration. It'd be sort of like a man coming to his wife saying, oh, by the way, I committed adultery. Would you please forgive me? Yeah, I'll forgive me. Oh, good. He'll give you. Oh, good. I'll go out and do it again. Well, no, that shows he wasn't really serious. He didn't really... uh, understand how bad that was and really repentant of it. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. Um, I like this statement. You don't have to change your life to become a Christian, but if you truly become a Christian, your life will change. Okay. Third principle here, a second chance is not the best option. A second chance is not the best option. What do I mean by that? I think again of my granddaughters when they were growing up. Whenever (laughs) uh, my daughter... Uh, we have to deal with them about something. She says, when do you obey? And they had learned the answer. The first time. Okay. That's the right answer, right? But how many times do we do that? Not just little kids, all right? The best option is to obey the first time. Look at Jonah's situation. God forgave him. He repented. God forgave him. 
Would it have been a whole lot better if when God called him for the first one and said, go preach it, he says, okay, I'll go, and he just went. Look at all the stuff he went through. All the consequences to himself and to other people, right? Yeah. And that's why depending on a second chance is not the best option. Or one of the reasons, anyway, because you have the consequences of disobedience. The consequences of, you know, the forgiveness is available, but there's other things that are lost. I think of Esau, who sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. And the Bible says that he repented and he cried, but he still lost his birthright. You know, um, you can lose future possibilities. I mean, there's all, you, you hurt someone so badly, you may never have that relationship again the way it was or what it could have been. Um, there's just so many consequences that come because of our sin and our disobedience. And there's just some things you can't get back. God will forgive you. You will not face eternal judgment. But there are just some consequences. Um, you know, I, I can think of, of testimonies of people, and, and we could t- if we had time, we don't, but if we could take testimonies of, of people who would say, you know, how many of you were involved in some kind of sin in your past? And you look back now, it's like, man, I wish I had just totally avoided that. Totally, 100%. You know, and on the other side, you can look at times where you did not give in to temptation, and you did do the right thing, and now it's like, man, I'm so glad I did the right thing. You know, um, I, I've I've testified many times. I I I am not perfect. I never have been perfect. I will not be perfect till I get to heaven. But you know, I gave my life to Christ when I was ten, and I never wandered away from that. And I never went out and did terrible things, and never got involved with drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff. And I look back and say, I don't have any regrets. And I see other people that did, and it's like, man, I'm glad I avoided that. But I also see people that got involved in all kinds of stuff, and now they're saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in Jesus, and God's good. But if you could ask them, would you go back and do it the same way again? No. <laughs> I wish I'd have made better choices, right? But not only that, you don't know if you have time for a second chance. That's not meant to be a threat, you know. Um, you don't know how many chances you have left. The only time you're guaranteed a second chance is today, you know, this moment. All right. Uh, Letter D there. Obedience demonstrates our love for God and our commitment to him. All right. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. First John 2, verses 4 to 5. John writes, whoever says, I know him, talking about God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Um, I heard this a long time ago, and I think this is really good. It says, the, the mark of your spiritual maturity is how quickly you obey God. The more time there is between when you know what God wants you to do and you choose to do it, it shows that you got a little bit of... You, you, it's called lag time, right? Between what, you, what, what should happen and, and have is lag time. You know? And we look at Jonah. You know, the first time God called him, lots of lag time. <laughs> I mean, he ran away, you know, and it took a lot of circumstances to get him back. But the second time God said go, he said he went. Didn't have the right attitude, still wasn't where he needed to be, but he went. All right. So, anyway. Um, number four, when we sin, what should we do? Now, this applies to salvation if we don't even have a relationship with God, but it also applies to us today. When we give into temptation, when we fall from God's best for us, when we make the wrong choice, what do we do? And we see a great example here in the king and what he asked the people to do. Go back to you know, chapter 3, verses 6 and 8. 
In verse 6, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Jump down to verse 8. He says, Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let him call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Looking at his example and what he asked the people to do, this is what I've got on here. Letter A, get off your throne. Why are you laughing? You guys saw that fill in the blank. It's like, what goes in there? Get off your, get off your throne and go home and repent of what you thought went in that blank. So, Get off your throne. Quit trying to be God in your life. Small g, God. If we want to repent, we've got to get off the throne of our life and be the, feel like we've got to be the one to, to rule it. Uh, letter B, take off your royal robes. Quit trying to pretend everything is all right. You know, stop making excuses. Take off the mask. Quit trying to cover things up. No, I'm taking, I'm taking, the, taking off the royal robes. I'm not going to pretend that everything's okay. Let us see. Sit down in the dust like the king did. Humble yourself before God, not caring what others will think. Humble yourself before God. Letter D, call urgently on God. I know the translation I'm reading for says mightily, but to me urgently, it's the same thing, but it really fits there. Call urgently on God. And then letter E, determine to change with God's help. That's what repentance is really about. When we sin and we want to make it right. And the good news is, is God forgives. As I mentioned in passing a little while ago, the sad fact is that 150 years from now, this nation will have gotten so wicked again that God is going to judge them and they're going to be conquered. In fact, the, uh, another of the minor prophets, Nahum, I think it is, is all about God's judgment on the city of Nineveh. You say, well, what good did it really do then for God to send Jonah anyway? It did a lot of good for that generation. And who knows how many generations after that that maybe have continued, or people, individuals that would have continued in doing the right thing. But unfortunately, over the course, I mean, you, a nation could go a long way in 150 years. Look at our own nation. It's gone a long way in the last 50 years. Or less than that. It doesn't take long, right? Um, but um, anyway... Uh, it's sad that that's the case. So, we said the subtitle of this series is A God or God of Mercy and Grace. Do we see God's mercy and grace in this chapter? Definitely, all over the place. The fact that he gives us a second chance. As we said before, the fact that he gives us a first chance, you know, to repent of our sin. And he does that not just for people who claim to love him and serve him and follow him, but for the most wicked of people, God. Yeah, there's a passage in Ezekiel, I should have put it in the notes here, and I can't give you the chapter and verse, where God says, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he's not just talking about their physical death, he's talking about their, their judgment. I, I wish that everybody would repent, you know? And so God's grace and mercy is all through this, all through this. Any final thoughts before we close in prayer? This is one of the few weeks we actually finish a little early. All right, well, next week we're going to pick up and look at chapter 4. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had together tonight to again look at Jonah, what he did, the response of the Ninevites, how you gave him and them a second chance. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that you never give up on us. Father, work in our lives. I can only really pray for myself, but I pray, Lord, show me any time I get off, off the path you have for me. Show me anything in my life that's not pleasing to you. And God, I pray that I would truly 
be repentant and, 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 and do the things I need to do, Lord God, to, to walk away from that, Lord God, to, to, to get your help to live the right way. And God, just help us to, to be more like Jesus. And Father, we just thank you for your goodness. I pray, dear God, that you would use us like you used Jonah, but with a different attitude to bring the good news, and sometimes that means the bad news too, to the people around us so they can know about Jesus and the forgiveness and love and second chance that you offer to them. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.